Good evening, everyone. Good evening and welcome, and thank you for braving the elements to be here this evening, but uh, it will be worth it, I assure you. Uh, my name is Jamie Boskett. I have the privilege of serving as the president and CEO of the Virginia Historical Society, and uh, very pleased for us all to be gathering tonight here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and particularly in our Robbins Family Forum for another uh, wonderful installment in these uh, these incredible lectures. Uh, tonight, of course, is a rather special one for us, special for two reasons. One, uh, we get the privilege of partnering, as we so often have, with two really remarkable organizations, our dear institutional friends, Preservation Virginia, who are the keepers of the John Marshall House, and, of course, the John Marshall Foundation. Uh, so we're thrilled to be co-sponsoring and welcoming you all here tonight. 
Uh, it's also the second reason special because we're talking about a topic that is rather near and dear to our hearts here at the Historical Society. John Marshall, as I hope that many of you will recall, I'm, I'm, I know seeing many faces I recognize, there are many VHS long-term members out here. I hope that you all will recall that Marshall was in fact our founding president of this remarkable organization, uh, serving from its inception in 1831 until the year he died in 1835. Uh, in fact, I, um, I understand that after the Historical Society was uh, organized in the old chamber at the Virginia State Capitol, their next stop was actually to proceed from the Capitol to Marshall's house and ask him to take on this role as the founding president of the organization, which he gladly accepted. Uh, this place has, of course, grown a great deal in the nearly two centuries since his term of leadership, and I think he'd be proud of what we represent today and what we're doing today, and particularly of this remarkable history collection that has assembled nearly nine million items in our, our permanent collection now, and it all goes back to Marshall. The first object, we believe, into our collection was, in fact, the book, Washington's biography that Marshall completed, that he signed and, and, uh, uh, and inscribed to the Historical Society at that moment that he became the first president. So there, with that book, started a collection that is now one of the most important history collections in this country. So really thrilled. And I also just will note, in addition to that, a great connection is that uh, one of our great early American treasures that we have here, which is George Washington's personal biography, or excuse me, his personal diary, written in his own hand from his early years as president. That diary uh, comes to us from Marshall through his son and is one of the treasures we have here. And in fact, even the, the remarkable book that, uh, that Richard is going to speak on tonight, the cover of that book, that beautiful portrait, we were just talking about it in the elevator on the ride down, is also a portrait from our collection here. So it really just couldn't be a more fitting place for us to have this, this lecture and to welcome Richard Brookheiser. Uh, before I introduce uh, Rick, I'd like to ask you all to take this moment, please, to silence your cell phones, or at least do me the, the great favor of checking to make sure you've silenced your cell phones. I have a personal career aspiration to make it through one full lecture without any sound effects. We will see. Uh, while you're doing that and reaching in your pockets, I'll share a few updates and, and a few teasers for uh, future occasions. Our next banner lecture will take place here at noon on Wednesday, December 5th. And that will also be a wonderful co-sponsored in our new efforts to convene and to assemble great relationships here. That day, we'll welcome Stuart McLaren, who's the president of the White House Historical Association, and historian William Seal to deliver a lecture entitled Scottish Stonemasons in Virginia Stone. Uh, that lecture we're co-sponsoring with the White House Historical Association, and perhaps you even noticed the display in the lobby. Perhaps for all of our members, you noticed the article in our last member uh, magazine. So put that down December 5th. Uh, also, a little bit sooner to note, later this week on Wednesday, November 14th, there are still a few seats left for our half-day symposium, Pocahontas, Her Life, Legend, and Legacy, which, as you may recall, uh, will feature five of the Virginia Indian chiefs as part of that uh, day-long panel. So really worth coming to and getting that perspective, a different perspective on Pocahontas and her legacy. It'll be right here on Wednesday, uh, and just a few seats remain. Also, and I'd be remiss, given the topic tonight, if I didn't give you the note to mark for February 2019, 
which is when we'll be thrilled to open a new special exhibition called John Marshall, Hidden Hero of National Union, uh, which will be here in the museum. So we can look forward to that and to continue to talk about this remarkable figure in our nation's history. So now, speaking of remarkable, on to tonight's speaker. Uh, Richard Brookheiser is a senior editor of the National Review, in which he published his first article the day after his 15th birthday. He began, that was just a couple years ago. He began working at the National Review after graduating from Yale University in 1977 and has been there ever since. For 20 years, Rick wrote a column for the New York Observer and is also freelance for a number of magazines, including The New Yorker, Cosmopolitan, Commentary, and Vanity Fair. In addition to writing about uh, contemporary politics, he's also become a renowned historian of our nation's founding era. Rick is author of 12 previous books, including Founder's Son, a, Li a Life of Abraham Lincoln, James Madison, and three, I believe, books related to George Washington. Uh, his newest book, which we're here to talk about this evening, which is fresh off the press, and I hope that you'll acquire a copy and get him to inscribe it to you, just as John Marshall inscribed his biography of Washington to us. Uh, his book, John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court, is our feature. So if you would, please join me in welcoming Richard Bookheiser. Thank you, Jamie, for that introduction, and thank you all for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor uh, to be speaking about John Marshall at his institution and in his hometown. Uh, book publicity can be a little frantic, so I realized halfway through my flight down here from New York that I had not packed my blazer. Uh, I'm, I'm emulating John Marshall, who when he first went to Raleigh to serve as a circuit court judge, had failed to pack a pair of pants. <laughs> uh, when he arrived, the tailors of Raleigh were too busy to supply the lack, so he had to hear his cases with his robe only draped over his legs. <laughs> so at least I'm sparing you that. Uh, about a month or two ago, a friend of mine asked me if I had paid Justice Kennedy to retire in order to publicize my forthcoming book. <laughs> and of course, I, I couldn't have foreseen the Kavanaugh hearings, but I knew something would be in the news. I knew there would certainly be a Supreme Court decision that was in the news, or there might be a personnel change change that was in the news. The Supreme Court is always in the news. And the man who first put it there was the fourth Chief Justice, John Marshall. So tonight, I just want to review, speak a little bit about who he was. I want to describe how he transformed the court, made it so important in the national life, I want to look at a couple of his great cases and talk a little bit about some of his critics in his own lifetime and since. I think the first thing to say about who John Marshall was, and this is even though he lived most of his adult life in Richmond, spent a number of years in Philadelphia, spent six months in Paris, but for all that, he was a country guy all his life. 
The first house he lived in was a log cabin. Uh, the second house was a frame house. The third had glass windows. So it wasn't quite Daniel Boone on the frontier, but it was out there. It was a country life that he grew up in. And despite his later experiences and his later achievements, there was something about the way he grew up that suited him all the rest of his days. The word that comes up over and over again when people describe him is simple. These are people meeting him for the first time, people who've known him for years. They describe him as simple. Uh, he didn't care how he dressed. He didn't care how his hair was cut. Uh, his wife cut it for him. If she hadn't, uh, who knows what he would have looked like. <laughs> he had very simple attitudes towards drinking. He liked it. <laughs> uh, when he became Chief Justice, he, he found that one of the customs of the Supreme Court was that after the justices had heard cases during the day and they retired to their boarding house to discuss them and deliberate uh, over dinner and after dinner, they could only have wine if it were raining outside. And I assume that would be to cheer themselves up. So Marshall would always ask one of his colleagues, often Joseph Story, Brother Story, can you look out the window and tell us what the weather is? And Story might say, well, it's, it's perfectly clear. And Marshall's invariable reply was, our jurisdiction is so vast that by the law of chances, it must be raining somewhere. <laughs> so wine was always served at the Marshall Court. Marshall liked simple games all his life, simple games. His nickname in the army was Silver Heels, partly because his mother knitted socks that had white heels, but also because he could jump over a bar that rested on the heads of two men. Uh, he walked miles before breakfast all his life until he was simply unable to do it. Uh, he loved the game of quoits which is like horseshoes, but it's, it's played with rings rather than horseshoes. And the point is to pitch the quoit around a post or a meg. And there was a club in Richmond, the Quoits Club. It, it met every Saturday from May to October. Uh, it was the Richmond elite. It had a limited membership. The governor was ex officio a member. And they would get together and they would sing songs and uh, give humorous speeches. If you mentioned politics or religion, you were fine a case of champagne. But uh, they would also play this game of quoits. And people describe March Marshall as being as intent on deciding whose quoit was closest to the Meg as he was in deciding his cases. So he had this, this lifelong simplicity of manner. The person he admired most, the man he admired most, apart, apart from his own father, Thomas Marshall, but the other man he admired most was the father of his country, George Washington. Marshall volunteered for the militia when he was 19 years old, 1775. He served through most of the Revolutionary War up to 1781. He was in three battles where Washington commanded. 
uh, Brandywine in September of 1777, Germantown in October, and then Monmouth in June of 1778. And in between Germantown and Monmouth, he was at Valley Forge, where Washington also commanded. And Marshall's judgment of Washington as a result of these experiences was that he was the rock on which the revolution rested. He saw him in defeats. He saw him in victories. He saw him at Valley Forge when the army was immobile, underfed, underclothed, and not paid. And Washington was the man who carried it through all these experiences. When Washington re returned his commission to Congress at the end of 1783, Marshall wrote, as soon as he heard the news, to his old friend James Monroe, he said, at length, the military career of the greatest man on earth is closed. May happiness attend him wherever he goes. Whenever I think of that superior man, my full heart overflows with gratitude. And he didn't only admire Washington as a military leader. He admired him as a political leader because he believed Washington had correctly diagnosed the problems that had led to the army's suffering during the Revolutionary War. The form of government that the new country had under the Articles of Confederation was simply inadequate to the tasks that it had to undertake. There needed to be a change. So when the Constitutional Convention meets in 1787, Washington, of course, is the presiding officer, and he signs that document, Marshall follows Washington again. And the next year, 1788, he's a delegate to the Virginia Ratifying Convention. He's a strong supporter of the Constitution. He gives a couple of speeches, one of them on the judiciary, in which he will later serve. And then after the Constitution is up and running, and the country develops its first two-party system, this was not envisioned in the Constitution, but it happened almost immediately, the party the marshal joins is Washington's party. It's the Federalist Party of the first president, second president, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, and also John Marshall. And its policies are a federal government able to collect taxes and to guide the financial affairs of the country, and a neutrality policy, a strong neutrality policy between with respect to the world war between Britain and revolutionary France. And these are the policies that, that John Marshall endorses. And he follows Washington for a third time. In 1798, Washington calls Marshall and his own nephew, Bushrod Washington. He summons them to Mount Vernon. And the reason is politics. Washington thinks the Federalist Party is in trouble in Virginia. And he tells these two young men that they have to run for Congress. Marshall doesn't want to do it. He's already, he's a lawyer in private practice. He's making good money. He needs the money. He has a growing family. He's buying land. He's buying farms. And he doesn't want to surrender that for public service. But Washington insists. And the anecdote 
about this trip to Mount Vernon is that Marshall finally decides he can't keep refusing the greatest man on earth. He's got to get out of there, so he'll get up at the crack of dawn and just leave. But Washington has gotten up first and put on his uniform. <laughs> uh, Marshall's description of what happened was that he yielded to Washington's representation. So he wins, he runs for Congress, he wins, and this puts him on the escalator to be Secretary of State and finally Chief Justice. The man that Marshall hated more than anyone else, and he didn't hate many people, but the one he hated the most was his second cousin once removed, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson returned that hatred. <laughs> Jefferson hated a fair number of people, but Marshall was always high on his list. In Jefferson's view, Marshall was a sophist. He would twist anything to get to the right judicial conclusion. Uh, Jefferson warned Joseph Story when he was about to be uh, nominated for the Supreme Court. He said, you must never give Marshall a direct answer to any question. If he asked me if the sun were shining, I would say, I don't know, sir. I can't tell. Marshall thought that Jefferson was a demagogue, that he would ride the popular tides of emotion, and he would do it by manipulating Congress. He would pretend to hang back, but he would really be giving Congress its marching orders and simply portray himself as a popular champion. The sundering fact for Marshall was that he thought Jefferson had stabbed George Washington in the back, that he had been a disloyal Secretary of State, uh, disagreeing with the administration's neutrality policies, inclining too much towards France. And the climactic moment came in 1797 when a letter that Jefferson had written to an Italian friend of his, uh, a man named Mazai, it, it was printed in Europe and then translated into English, printed in England, finally in America. And in this, Jefferson said, I would give you a fever if I would name men who've been Samson's in combat and Solomon's in council, whose heads have been shaved by the harlot England. And Jefferson was taking the final step. He was no longer uh, saying that, that Washington had been simply misled by Alexander Hamilton, but that Washington himself uh, has had, had his head shaved by the harlot England. Marshall's comment on this letter, a few years later, he said, the morals of the author of the letter to Mazai cannot be pure. And that is Virginia gentleman language for he is dead to me. <laughs> there was no coming back from that for John Marshall. So how did he get on the court, and what did he do once he got there? Marshall was a lame duck appoint, appointee. John Adams had lost the election of 1800. This was his rematch with Thomas Jefferson. He won narrowly four years earlier, but he lost pretty soundly in 1800. It was a blue wave. Uh, Jefferson's party took the White House, and it flipped both houses of Congress. So in the lame duck period, the Federalist, the still Federalist Congress passed a Judiciary Act, which uh, increased the size of the federal judiciary, which was a prudent 
a prudent measure, but it also opened up patronage opportunities for Federalist employees. And then Adams received a notice from the sitting Chief Justice, the third Chief Justice, Oliver Ellsworth, that Ellsworth's health was bad. Ellsworth had gout, and he didn't want to serve anymore. So he was notifying the president that he was stepping down. So Adams offered the job to the first man who had been Chief Justice, uh, the great patriot John Jay, diplomat, spy master, author of Federalist Papers. And he'd been Chief Justice from 1789 to 1795. And he'd left the court to be governor of New York for two terms. So Adams sent his name to the Senate. The Senate confirmed him. And then Adams got a letter from Jay saying that he wouldn't take the job. He said that the federal judiciary lacks energy, weight, and dignity. So we have to picture Adams in his office in the still not completed White House. The exterior shell is up, but a lot of the inside looks like a construction site. And he's sitting with John Marshall, whom he had appointed Secretary of State. He'd plucked him from Congress to be his Secretary of State the year earlier. And the president asked Marshall, who shall I nominate now? And Marshall said, I don't know, sir. Adams thought and said, I believe I'll nominate you. So this is how Marshall's name was sent to the Senate. He was confirmed, and he began his service only a few weeks before he swore in his cousin, Thomas Jefferson, as the incoming president. Now, he is on a court. When he joins the court, there are, there are only six justices. That's the size of the court. Of course, they're all Federalists. They were all appointed by George Washington or John Adams. But after 11 years of presidents of the other party, the Republican Party, the ancestor of today's Democrats, not, not the GOP, but the Republican Party of Jefferson and Madison, the partisan balance has shifted to two Federalists and five Republicans. Uh, the court increased uh, in size by one justice. Congress had, had made it larger. Uh, so that's, that's a significant shift. But all of these justices ended up agreeing with John Marshall. Now, how did he do it? One means, I think, was his geniality. This was an aspect of his simplicity. People liked being in his company. He liked being with people. Joseph Story said, I love his laugh. And this was a sentiment that a lot of people repeated over the years. Marshall also showed deference as a justice. If there were colleagues who were more expert in areas of law than he was, he would let them take the lead. Uh, land titles was one such area, especially in Kentucky. Uh, they, were, they were very confused. There was bad surveying. Uh, lots of lawsuits were generated. Many of them came to the Supreme Court. And Marshall would let Justice Todd, who, who was from Kentucky and was expert in this area, take the lead in those opinions. Uh, he would also, for admiralty law cases, he would often let Justice Story take the lead on those. But when you give deference, then you can ask for it. You can get it in return. So it's the polite thing. 
it's the right thing, and it's also the smart thing to do. The third quality was Marshall's mind. He was always the smartest man in the room. And it wasn't, it wasn't a quick intelligence. It could take him a while to, uh, to get out of his easygoing default mode and to get engaged. But when he was engaged, he was overpowering. One of the lawyers before the Supreme Court, William Wirt, who would become Attorney General, said that Marshall's mind was like the Atlantic Ocean. Everyone else's minds were like ponds. So that was the impression that that Marshall left on a, on a legally literate uh, colleague. Then all these qualities, Marshall used over an extraordinary length of time. His idol, George Washington, had been commander in chief for eight and a half years and then president for eight years. So that's 16 and a half years that he was in effect, or in reality, the chief executive of the country. But Marshall was chief justice for 34 years, twice as long. That's still the record tenure uh, for a chief justice. And 12 of those years, there was no change in the personnel of the court. There were 12 justices who had shared the same rooming house, had the same wine, been in each other's company. It was an extraordinary uh, period of stability. So uh, the cases that Marshall uh, decided during this time, especially in that 12-year that section, uh, the most famous, uh, one, of his, one of his first uh, important decisions, Marbury versus Madison, it's probably his most famous case. And it's famous because uh, he establishes the, the principle that the court uh, can find a law passed by Congress unconstitutional. Now, I don't think that was, that was news when he made that decision. He didn't invent judicial review. That was a doctrine that was already in the air. It was understood. Uh, Alexander Hamilton had written about it in the Federalist Papers. Marshall himself had talked about it at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. Uh, so that, that wasn't the news in that decision. I, I think at the time that it was uh, issued, the 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 news of it was that it's a 9,000 word decision and 8,500 words of it or so are a lecture to the Jefferson administration that they have misbehaved. Uh, you know, you guys said we were bad and you were gonna come in and be so much better, but look, you didn't give William Marbury the, the commission that he was entitled to. And then almost as a coda, it's, well, Marbury can't get it because he's, he's applying under a portion of the law which is in fact unconstitutional. But, uh, but the decision as a whole is a big finger wag at, at the Jefferson administration. There were also a number of cases which asserted federal supremacy over state court decisions. Uh, Dartmouth v. Woodward, uh, McCullough v. Maryland, Cones v. Virginia, Osborne v. Bank of the United States. But I want to talk about uh, two tonight, one having to do with contracts the other having to do with commerce. Uh, the first one is Fletcher versus Peck. And this had to do with a land deal uh, done by the state of Georgia in the 1790s. Georgia was the poorest of the 13 states. Uh, it really had 
almost nothing except millions of acres of land going all the way to the Mississippi River, what are now the states of, of Alabama and Mississippi. And, and Georgians felt that if they could somehow sell, sell this land off, they could balance their books. So in uh, 1794, there was a sale of Georgia land, 35 million acres. It went for a penny and a half an acre. Uh, every member of the Georgia legislature was bribed. The, the going rate was $1,000 per vote. One man took only $600. He said he did it because he wasn't greedy. <laughs> and of course, the purchasers were not intending to live on this land. The tract was known as the Yazoo country because the Yazoo River was in it. It flowed into the Missis Mississippi River in what's now the state of Mississippi. Gave its name to this whole parcel of land, and the deal is, is known as the Yazoo deal. Uh, but n none of these purchasers were intending to live there. They wanted to flip it. Uh, this is an old American practice. And so they, they flipped their purchases almost immediately. Then Georgia struck back. Uh, all the legislators were turned out of office at the next election. Uh, the new legislature passed a repeal act, which rescinded the sale and also forbade it to be brought up in Georgia courts. The penalty for any uh, employee of the state who so much as referred to it would be $1,000. Uh, the original sale was burned in the public square of the state capitol. And legend has it that when it was about to be burned, an old man stepped from the crowd and said that corruption should be destroyed by fire from heaven. So he pulled a magnifying glass out of his coat and held it up so the sun could uh, set, fire to the, set fire to the pages. Well, so what, what can the purchasers do? They, they asked for a legal opinion. Uh, from one of the best lawyers of the day. This was Alexander Hamilton, who's no longer Treasury Secretary. He's in private practice in New York. And Hamilton wrote a trim little opinion in which he said that the sale would probably be upheld under the contract clause of the Constitution. This is in Article I, Section 10. States are forbidden to impair the obligation of contracts. Hamilton said if this comes to trial, the courts will probably find it so, that the sale has to be upheld. Then how do you bring it to trial? You can't bring it to trial in a Georgia court, because they've forbidden that. You can't sue Georgia if you're a citizen of another state, because the 11th Amendment has said that this cannot be done. But citizens of two different states, if they are involved in a suit, that can go to federal jurisdiction. So uh, John Fletcher, excuse me, Robert Fletcher of New Hampshire sued John Peck of Massachusetts. Peck had sold him a tract of Yazoo land. And Fletcher said, you didn't really have title to this because the act has been repealed. So I want my $3,000 back. Fletcher and Peck went to court. The case comes to the Supreme Court in 1809. There's a technical problem with one of the uh, appeals, so it's re-argued in 1810. And Marshall's decision tracks Hamilton's argument. Hamilton's argument had been printed in a pamphlet back in the 1790s. I don't know if 
Marshall read it. Probably he had. He, he follows Hamilton's argument almost to the letter. And he says that the original sale is valid because of Article I, Section 10, which forbids states from impairing the obligation of contracts. And then he says something audacious. He says that this is a bill of rights for the people of each state. Now, we think of the Bill of Rights, and people at the time thought of the Bill of Rights as the first 10 amendments, protecting freedom of speech, freedom of the press, right to keep and bear arms, no warrantless searches. But Marshall is saying, no, the Bill of Rights is not an amendment. It's in the body of the Constitution itself. It's Article I, Section 10, which forbids the states from impairing the obligation of contracts. This shows how important Marshall thought contracts were. The second decision I want to talk about involves the Commerce Clause. And this is later in Marshall's career, 1824, Gibbons versus Ogden, the steamboat case. Steamboats were invented several times at the end of the 18th century, early 19th century. Different inventors and tinkerers figured out how to use a Watt steam engine, which was new technology, and how to put it on a boat and convert the power into a mechanism that would move a paddle wheel. And one of these inventors was Robert Fulton. He demonstrated his first prototype on the Seine in France. And one of the spectators was the American minister to France, Robert Livingston, the New York Hudson River grandee, uh, a wealthy man, a man who'd been in New York state politics for years. And Livingston became Fulton's backer. Uh, he would give him the money to make these boats practical. He would also give him political protection because he was able to get the New York legislature to give him and Fulton a monopoly on steamboats in New York waters for 30 years. This was in 1808. An 1811 law said anyone who sued the monopolists would have their boats impounded during the time that the, that the case was being tried. So that's another uh, extra protection that Livingston was able to secure. And of course, they were sued because other people figured out how to put Watt steam engines on boats. Uh, one, one thing they did was they bought their competition off. There were some promoters in Albany who, who had two boats, and so the monopoly said, well, we'll give you Lake Champlain, but we intend to keep the Hudson River in New York Harbor, Long Island Sound. So they made a deal. Uh, they also uh, argued the case in New York State Court. New York State upheld the monopoly. Another competitor was Aaron Ogden, uh, a man from New Jersey. He was running a boat from Elizabeth, New Jersey into Staten Island. Uh, the monopoly took him to court, and there was a, a tragic mishap. Uh, Robert Fulton was returning to New York across the frozen Hudson River. This, this was during the winter, and of course there were no bridges then, so if you wanted to cross the river, you had to do it on foot. And the lawyer, his lawyer, Thomas Addis Emmett, fell through the ice. Uh, Fulton pulled him out, but he caught a fatal case of pneumonia. So he died saving his lawyer's life. Uh, but uh, the monopoly marched on. 
And the deal they made with Ogden was that he would become a licensee. Uh, he, would, he would pay $600 a year and the monopoly would let him run his boat into Staten Island. Now Ogden himself took on a partner, Thomas Gibbons. And for a year or two, this partnership worked well. But then there was a crisis in Gibbons' family. A rumor went abroad that Gibbons' daughter had slept with her fiance. So Mr. Gibbons decided that his daughter, his wife, and himself should all sign an ad in the newspapers saying that this rumor was false. Aaron Ogden thought this was a bad idea. The rumor apparently was true, and Ogden's, Ogden's view was don't, don't publicize it. But Gibbons was so enraged by his partner's advice that he appeared at Ogden's door one day with a bullwhip. Ogden had to flee out the back, and he sued Gibbons for trespass. This was the end of their partnership. <laughs> Gibbons now hired to run his boats a young Staten Island ferryboat captain named Cornelius Vanderbilt. <laughs> young Vanderbilt had no education, but he was the perfect man for this job. He loved it. He built a secret compartment for himself in the middle of, of Gibbons's boat so that when uh, the process servers came to give him a warrant, he could hide in there and no one could find him. Uh, he loved playing cat and mouse with the, with the cops in New York Harbor. He was also sent to Washington to hire counsel for his boss, and the lawyer that he hired was Daniel Webster, a uh, young politician rising as, as the greatest uh, lawyer in the United States at the time. So this case, Gibbons v. Ogden, comes before the court in 1824. And the issue is the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, which says that Congress may regulate uh, commerce within the United States. But the defenders of the monopoly, Mr. Emmett, who had been pulled out of the frozen Hudson River, uh, his argument was Congress has passed no law respecting steamboats or commerce on New York waters. So in the absence of a law of Congress, the state has a right to erect a monopoly. Webster's counterargument was, no, even if Congress hasn't acted, states cannot take it upon themselves to regulate commerce. He says the commerce of the United States is an unit. It's e pluribus unum. And then after he made his argument, after Marshall gave his opinion, he said, Marshall uh, took his argument from me as a baby takes milk from its mother. <laughs> now, this wasn't quite true. Marshall's decision uh, repeats, essentially, Webster's argument. And he says, I'm not sure that's, that it has been refuted. But then he hangs his decision on a lesser point, which is that Gibbons's boats had a federal coasting license. Now, what this coasting license was, it was identification for revenue purposes. It meant, I am a domestic boat. The penalties that the federal government puts on foreign boats do not apply to me. It was a way of protecting uh, American, American shipping. But Marshall said, a license is a license to do a thing. So if you have a federal coasting license, it's more than a piece of revenue ID. It is a license to permit you to coast up and down the United States. So therefore, 
Gibbons's boats can go from Elizabeth into Staten Island. Now, the effect of this was immediate. The number of, of steamboats in New York waters quadrupled. Uh, the first one to come in from arrival was a week after the decision was handed down, and it, uh, it, it fired cannon, and people waved to it from the shore. But it, it opened American waters to wider steamboat traffic. And the reason I, I focus on these two cases, one on contracts, one on commerce, is that when we're thinking about America's economic development, the founding father we tend to credit as the godfather of it is Alexander Hamilton, and particularly after the musical. <laughs> well, but I, I like the musical. I, I, I saw it before it went to Broadway. I reviewed it. I think, I think it does a good job. And certainly Hamilton deserves the lion's share of the credit. But his plans and his hopes needed legal support, needed judicial support. And the decisions of the Marshall Court having to do with contracts and commerce gave it that support. They helped undergird the American economic system, uh, which we still have more or less today. So of course, Marshall had critics in his lifetime and after. His, his most eloquent critic was Thomas Jefferson, who wrote letter after letter to his correspondence complaining of Marshall decisions. He called them twistifications. He said they were like eels of the law, that Marshall hung inference upon inference like Jacob's ladder. And he even suggested that instead of the Supreme Court being the final arbiter of constitutional questions, they should be submitted to constitutional conventions, that conventions should be called to decide these issues. Uh, he made this suggestion in a letter to James Madison, and Madison did what he so often did, which was to uh, hold the guy line of, of, attached to the dirigible of his friend's intellect and kind of give it a tug. Uh, and Madison said, you know, having a series of constitutional uh, conventions would be tardy, troublesome, and expensive. Uh, Richard Mentor Johnson was a senator during Marshall's lifetime. He's most famous for having killed Tecumseh during the War of 1812 at the Battle of the Thames in, in what's now Canada. He's probably second most famous for his campaign jingle, which went ripsy, rampsy, rumpsy, dumpsy. I, Dick Johnson, killed Tecumseh. <laughs> but he was also a serious man. He was a, a small D Democrat and a large D Democrat, but he was, he was of democratic principles, populist principles. And he didn't, he thought that the Supreme Court had too much power, and it was power that rightly belonged with the people. So he offered a series of constitutional amendments in the early 1820s to restrict the court's power, either to restrict its jurisdiction or to give the Senate veto power over court decisions, or to say that the court needed supermajorities if it was going to make a constitutional decision. And none of these amendments went anywhere. They, they never got out of Congress. A lot of them were squelched in committee. And then, later yet in the 19th century, Abraham Lincoln 
becomes a critic of the court after the Dred Scott decision of 1857. And Lincoln hammers on this decision for four years uh, until he's elected president, and he's still doing it in his first inaugural address, uh, having been sworn in by Justice Taney, who wrote the decision. Uh, Taney was described at Lincoln's inauguration as looking like a galvanized corpse. <laughs> and while he might, because Lincoln was, was his, one of his greatest critics, uh, Lincoln agreed that in any Supreme Court decision, the parties to that particular case had to abide by it. So, for instance, in the Dred Scott decision, Dred Scott would have to stay a slave because he was, he was the named party in the case. But Lincoln said the, to use these decisions as precedents to cover all similar actions, you had to distinguish between Supreme Court decisions that were settled and decisions that were erroneous. And he defined an erroneous decision as one that violated the government's practice up to that point as a decision or as a decision that was not unanimous. Now, if that's the bar, that's a very high bar. That would, that would get rid of a, a lot of Supreme Court decisions, including some of John Marshall's and his court. Uh, the Marshall Court had many unanimous decisions, but not by no means all of them were, not even the important ones. So Lincoln was, was levying a very heavy criticism, though unlike Jefferson or Senator Johnson, he had no solution uh, to propose, no alternative way of deciding. And these issues are still with us uh, anytime one of the political parties is unhappy with the court, they, they grumble about it, and, and, and there is talk of things like restricting its jurisdiction or perhaps packing it somehow. So it's an, it's an ongoing question that we face, a question about Marshall's legacy. When Marshall died, he felt he'd failed. He, he feared that the power of the states was going to be too strong. He wrote a letter a year before he died that the essential question of the American government is, is it a government or a league? And uh, he, he feared that the league side was winning. He'd hoped that Andrew Jackson would not be reelected in 1832, and that another president, possibly Henry Clay, would appoint, would promote a story to be Chief Justice, allowing Marshall to retire. But Jackson was reelected. So Marshall served until he died in 1835. And there were many tributes to him, a, a very gracious one from Andrew Jackson, uh, more gracious than anything that Jefferson or Marshall said about each other. But the best tribute came from here, came from Richmond, it came from the Quoits Club. And they decided that because Marshall was irreplaceable, the Quoits Club should always have one fewer member. So thank you very much, and I'll take questions. Uh, we have um, microphones in the aisle. Can you offer any insights into uh, Marshall's uh, reckoning with Aaron Burr? 
Oh yes, the Burr trial, that was one of the great events in Richmond. Um, well, now, now Jefferson's point of view was that this was a, an unholy league of all his enemies. Uh, Marshall as the, the presiding, one of the presiding judges, because it was a circuit court trial. Marshall was serving as a circuit court judge here in Richmond. So it was Marshall, it was Burr, who was the renegade of the Republican Party, uh, who had not stepped aside in the deadlocked election of 1800. Jefferson called him a crooked gun after that. He wasn't so crooked as to miss at Alexander Hamilton. Uh, and then, you know, the Federalist remnants in the country, and Jefferson saw them all, you know, combined in, in a, you know, an unholy alliance to defend this scoundrel. Uh, I think what Marshall was doing was, was trying to interpret the law of treason very strictly and very much according to the Constitution. Uh, and it says, you know, that it has to be an overt act of aid and comfort to the enemy, our enemies, or uh, an act of making war upon the United States. And it must be overt with two witnesses to it. Uh, and since we had no enemies uh, at the time, it would have had to have been an act of making war on the United States. And Marshall stopped testimony um, when uh, it seemed that all the federal government was proving was that 20-some uh, people left an, uh, an island in the Ohio River, um, you know, with a few rifles and bullets, and their intention, their announced intention, was to settle in Arkansas. Uh, it certainly seemed like a very small force to take over New Orleans and invade Mexico. Uh, so, so Aaron Burr walked. Now, long after Marshall and Burr and Jefferson were dead, uh, people, you know, looked in European archives and they found that uh, Burr's accuser and probable partner James Wilkinson had been an agent of Spain since 1787. Burr had approached the governments of Britain and Spain asking for help to split the United States up. And then Burr, when Burr was in exile uh, in Europe, uh, self-imposed self exile after his treason trial, he told Jeremy Bentham uh, that he was, had hoped to be emperor of Mexico, and if that had failed, he would have set up as a monarch in the United States. So, you know, Burr was no good. He was, he was, he was just a, a bad guy. But uh, the trial was not about how good or bad Aaron Burr was. It was whether he had committed treason. And the founders, they wrote the Constitution that way, as Benjamin Franklin put it at the Constitutional Convention. Prosecutions for treason, he was thinking of English history, had been virulent. They had been political weapons. You know, for a party in power to get its enemies, they would charge them with treason in often trumped up ways. And we didn't want to have that happening here. So, uh, you know, I think Marshall followed the law. Any, any other question? The uh, dealing with the Marshall-Jefferson feud, um, to take it possibly a little deeper, do you think John Marshall's grandmother and Tom Jefferson's mother and their tie into the Randolph family had any kindling of this disagreement? I don't, I don't know. I mean, this was, I mean, there was this lurid event in, uh, they were both Randolphs on, on, their, on their mother's side. That's their cousinship. And, uh, you know, the Gothic event in Marshall's past was that his maternal grandmother 
uh, supposedly ran off with the Irish overseer when she was a kid and uh, had a child by him, and her brothers tracked them down and killed the overseer and the child and brought her back. She had a breakdown. Then she recovered, and then she married uh, Reverend Keith, a minister of the Church of England, where he felt she fell in love with him. And the Randolphs, I guess, figured they couldn't kill a minister of the Church of England, but they got him booted from his pulpit and booted out of the colony of Virginia. Then they relented and they let her marry him, and she did. She had a family, including Marshall's mother. And then in her middle age, she got a letter from the overseer who said, well, I was not in fact killed, but uh, I'm, I'm not going to come claim you. And she had a second breakdown from which she never recovered. And she lived into Marshall's life. I mean, she was cared for by, his, uh, by one of his sisters. So he certainly would have known of this. Then there was also there was also a question of uh, was his branch of the family done out of a done out of a property by some you know connivance on, on the other side? I don't know. Uh, th they had reason enough. You know, I, I don't think we have to go uh, looking into these gothic nooks and crannies. I, I think the the politics of the 1790s was enough to drive these men apart. And we have to remember how inflamed that politics was. This comes up in, in every talk I give on a founder, whoever he is. Um, you know, why can't our politics be like theirs? And I always say, well, theirs was worse. Uh, if, if you, I mean, we're getting there. We're getting there. But, you know, and it wasn't just, um, hack journalists. Uh, it was great men. Thomas Jefferson really thought that Hamilton was a monarchist and uh, probably a British, British agent of some sort. And Hamilton, at some moments anyway, really thought that Jefferson might set up guillotines if he won. Uh, it was just rabid, rabid politics. Uh, and the, the benchmark is that they killed each other. Um, when, when Dick Cheney shot that man, it was an accident and he lived. But when Vice President Burr shot Alexander Hamilton, it was deliberate and he died. And Hamilton was not the only signer of the Constitution to die in a duel. Richard Spate also died in a political duel. Uh, one signer of the Declaration died in a duel. Uh, one of Marshall's colleagues on the Supreme Court, Brock Holtz Livingston, he was a New York Republican. He had a duel with a Federalist. He shot him in the groin, and he bled out in five minutes. And no one mentioned this when he was confirmed. So <laughs> different time. I guess it's male privilege. Can you give me your opinion of Marshall's opinion on slavery? Well, as, as you know, because you've heard uh, Paul Finkelman lectured here earlier in the year, and he, he made a discovery that uh, Marshall owned 10 times as many slaves as, as he'd always been credited. Uh, every biography of Marshall that, that I've read before Finkelman wrote his book uh, had said that, well, Marshall owned 10 or 12 slaves. Uh, and I think this was based on um, records of purchases that stopped in the 1790s. And what Finkelman did was he looked at 
uh, property transfers and Marshall's will, where he's leaving different farms to sons of his. And he, he wrote several wills and codicils and so on. And then Finkelman looked at census records and found how many slaves were uh, attached to these properties. And he starts adding it up. And it's, it's, it's quite a lot of people. Uh, I think the, um, that, that's, the, that's the personal aspect of it. But I, I think the, the most fruitful way, maybe, to look at this question is to contrast Marshall's rulings having to do with slaves and his rulings having to do with Indians or Native Americans. And it strikes me that he goes out of his way to rule favorably on questions involving Indians, certainly in the Cherokee cases. He, he, is, uh, he is looking for a case where he can yield a good decision. He, he almost says as much in his, in his first case, Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, which is a legal defeat for the Cherokees. But he says, you know, if, if the case comes back in a proper case with proper parties, maybe their rights could be looked at again. And then he issued uh, Worcester v. Georgia, which was the decision that was ignored. Uh, his, his cases, his decisions on cases involving slaves follow positive law. Uh, and he, he alludes to natural law. Uh, he says uh, uh, it's in the Antelope decision, which was a decision involving a, a slave ship which was captured off the, uh, off the coast of Florida, uh, brought into Savannah, and what was the dip disposition of the, of the slaves on board. And uh, in Marshall's decision, he says that, you know, of course, under natural law, um, no man can labor for another without compensation. I mean, that is unjust. But uh, the law of nations has to recognize the laws of nations, and if nations permit the slave trade, as Spain and Portugal still did, uh, we have to take account of that in our decision. And this affects how, how the Africans are, uh, how they are ultimately um, bestowed. Uh, some of them, some of them were, were freed and sent to Liberia. Others, uh, others remained in slavery and were actually bought by a congressman who got Congress to pass a special bill so he could have 37 of them. Um, so, and this is, this is an instance where I think, you know, Marshall was the great admirer of George Washington, uh, also of Alexander Hamilton, and this is the one uh, area where he diverges. Because Washington, lifelong slave owner, but he frees all his slaves in his will. And Hamilton may never have owned slaves, and he helps found the New York Manumission Society, which begins the process of turning New York from a slave state to a free state. Very long process, but it, it finally worked. So uh, Marshall is just not willing to take those extra steps. He follows the laws it is, the laws that's on the books. Uh, he is a unionist, and he does fear that the country is going to break apart. Uh, but he's not, in my view, uh, willing to address uh, slavery except in just following the positive law before him. All right, thank you very much.